Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Ian Barkin. Ian's the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer of Sykes, a billion-dollar customer experience management company. In this role, he helps drive Sykes' digital initiatives and industry influence. Ian's also the moderator of One Take Live, a program in which he interviews a variety of digital leaders in both podcast and video formats. Ian previously co-founded Symphony Ventures, which was acquired by Sykes in 2018. In this interview, we discuss how Sykes leverages technology inside the company, how it uses data to deeply understand the buyer and design the best solutions for them, and some of the ways in which companies are mismanaging customer experience management. We discuss why Ian believes robotic process automation will be a foundation to organizational transformation for years to come, the major differences between RPA and artificial intelligence and machine learning, and the dangers of using intelligent automation capabilities such as AI too soon. Lastly, we discuss Ian's career path from strategy consulting to business process outsourcing to founding Symphony Ventures to the C-suite of Sykes, among a variety of other topics. This interview features insights from my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. It's available now for pre-order on Amazon or through gettingtonimble.com. Stick around after the interview to learn more. Ian Barkin, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you, Peter. It's a thrill to be here. Oh, well, the, the thrill is mine, certainly. So um, by way of introduction, you are the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer of Sykes. And uh, for those who may be listening to this who are less familiar with it, I thought we'd begin with the obvious question, which is, what is Sykes? Can you talk a bit about the, the company that you're a executive of? Great question. Yes. So Sykes is a customer experience management company. And what that means when you when you uh, uh, look beyond the the jargon, I suppose, uh, Sykes has been around for 43 years. It is an, an organization that exists in uh, 23 countries, 55,000 people strong, and we work with the world's leading brands to support their marketing, sales, and services. Uh, so uh, the sort of the simplest way to think of us is is most of our work is in the call center, contact center space. Uh, we pick up the phones, we answer the texts of uh, the the customers that all of the world's enterprises count on uh, and hope are happy and supported. And we're part of the equation to to help them keep them happy and supported. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, actually. So um, how has that in, in 43 years, not that you've been with the company all that time, um, mm-hmm. how much has that changed? And I'd love to especially understand a bit more about the role that technology has played in facilitating those changes. Absolutely. So so a lot is the short answer of how it has <laughs> changed. Uh, and and the organization evolved. So in the, in the 43 years uh, that Sykes has been around, we started actually as an engineering um, sort of drafting company. We would draft the, the engineering user manuals for IBM mainframes and computers like that. And there's a great sort of epiphany story that is, is really sort of enterprise lore, if you will. And it's of the founder, John Sykes, uh, and his son, Chuck Sykes, now runs the organization, my boss. Uh, and John, one day while uh, looking at one of these user manuals, noticed that there was a 1-800 phone number on the back of it and asked a uh, relatively straightforward question, which was, 
where does a call go if you call said 1-800 number? Uh, and so the epiphany really was that the, um, the services and support uh, arena was going to become quite important to the success of any product or service rollout. And so that really was the, the catalyst to then expand our scope of offerings into the customer care, customer support space. And I suppose the rest is, is history. Uh, and technology has always been a component of this uh, for a few reasons. One, because we were quite early on in leveraging uh, domestic teams in small towns. And I think that's a, a really exciting story and something that I'm, I'm spending a lot of time looking into just for sake of storytelling. Uh, but we had small teams in small towns that created opportunity and prosperity for them. But that was all predicated on being able to get a strong enough a telecommunications link to that team in town to to support our clients with the uptimes and the the fidelity that they required of us. And then we were quite early on in the move offshore. We actually were, uh, I believe, the first sort of established call center to open up operations in the Philippines. And so that that comes with it a whole other uh, compounding complex ball of wax as far as how do you get the ones and zeros you need to your agents far, far away. Uh, and more so, how do you ensure security and compliance and control over a client's data? Uh, not just the systems that our agents would be using, but the customer data, um, often very sensitive customer data. And so we had to pioneer how you use uh, virtualization and how you uh, leverage the the internet or other fiber capabilities. So, so the mechanics, the plumbing of our industry has always been reliant on leveraging technologies to the, the furthest extent we can. And and I'm sure we'll go into this in more detail, but there's there's a, a a reality now that every component of what we do is predicated on on software that enables us to do it uh, for a few different reasons. One, because it it allows us to be efficient, fast, accurate, but it also gives us a digital. Uh, exhaust, if you will, or a, a digital footprint that allows us the insight and analytics to study everything we do uh, across the entire journey, uh, how we identify candidates and hire them and train them and maintain them and support them, to how we address and understand and decipher the the particular topic a, a customer is calling about, how we get them the right information accurately and quickly, and how we send them on their way, uh, hopefully, uh, with their problem being solved, uh, or at least um, with a greater deal of clarity as to the situation they're in. And all of that's predicated on technology. Mm, very interesting. Let's talk a bit about your role. As I mentioned, you're the chief strategy and marketing officer, an interesting combination of, of uh, areas within your purview. Talk sure. a bit about uh, that purview a bit and and how the, the two sides of those work together. Right. Interestingly, I, I think they actually dovetail quite well because, as, as you said, as a chief strategy officer, uh, my role is to, to work with the leadership of the organization, but also keep an eye on uh, not just the market and, and sort of more importantly uh, than sort of what our peers are doing in the space, what, what consumers are doing. And so I spend a lot of my time wearing my chief strategy officer hat, just studying behavior 
studying the way that a, um, a customer of a bank or a telecommunications provider or um, of a food delivery shop or, you know, the list goes on. We've got um, several hundred clients, but what are their behaviors and how are they changing as a result of Sort of macro trends, technology capabilities, and obviously, especially in light of um, the last year or so of of pandemic, um, what are, what do they expect, and what is good in their eyes? And then, from a marketing standpoint, I get to I get to inherit all of the the work I just did, and the team, uh, and and our teams all over the world, and figure out ways to to encapsulate that in concise and hopefully interesting messaging uh, and product. So how do we articulate the way that we uh, support, uh, obviously, a, a large virtual team now because so much of our workforce was uh, was sent home so that we were working from home rather than working within our, our delivery centers all over the world. Um, how do we tell that story? How do we ensure that the world knows that we've kept our, our team safe We've also kept our customers uh, supported, and so that's it's. Uh, I guess it's it's made my marketing job a bit easier because I sort of know what stories I'm supposed to be telling because of of my strategy job. That makes sense, and, and you know, having gotten to know a, a number of chief marketing officers, and for that matter, even chief strategy officers, you have an unusual technology bent to you relative to your peers who hold those titles, and I, I have to imagine that's an enormous. Uh, uh, advantage for you, although you're bragging for you here, here in, but uh, a great advantage that you have that you've been immersed in technology, you've been an entrepreneur, you've uh, been an instructor, an author uh, related to topics uh, such as RPA and AI, uh, a couple of topics that I'd like to mine a little bit further with you in a moment. But talk a bit about, um, you started to allude to the critical role that technology plays in Sykes offering and uh, the exhaust of the interactions that uh, world-class organizations are having with their customers, the data that they're accumulating, that there's now this ability to provide much better uh, customer care, so to say, uh, as a result of mining those insights um, to more directly address um, issues or opportunities as they present themselves. Talk a little bit about some of the, 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 the mechanisms of how that's undertaken. I, I think it's a particularly interesting, you know, new sort of area that, that organizations need to focus on in, in order to make sure that they continue to have um, happy customers. Talk, talk a, bit, a bit about the ways in which that's brought to life. Certainly. I, uh, I'll start by saying I always get a kick out of the phrase uh, data exhaust just because it sounds dirty. And unfortunately, there's, we need to find a better word that just means sort of un, unutilized. Mm. So much of what happens in an enterprise, in any engagement, in any interaction, uh, creates information. And if that information isn't mined in some way, then it's, and it sort of dissipates into the air, I suppose, like exhaust. Uh, it doesn't necessarily hang hang in the atmosphere or destroy the ozone necessarily, but but if you're not using that information uh, to understand something better or to redesign the way you do something, then then it's effectively lost. And so, what we're privileged with, frankly, is is this amazing access to the most relevant interaction and touch points that I think any enterprise has. And I think it would be impossible to argue otherwise, which is we are speaking to your customers. 
And we're speaking to them at all of the stages along their customer journey, whether that be that they're doing research because they're interested in perhaps becoming your customer, or they are now in need of assistance to set up the thing or service they just procured from you. So they are now the beginning stages of being your customer. And you know the the fate of them as a as a long term customer is is about to be decided as far as how well they can interact and set things up. And then uh, throughout their throughout their life cycle uh, as a customer, as they pay, as they as they look to to solve issues, as they look to to determine you know what better services they might get from you. So every one of those touch points is 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 gold, right? It, and it, it needs to be handled well. It needs to be handled respectfully. And uh, there are so many different ways to measure what good is, but sometimes good is just, it was a great experience that they would recommend to a friend. Sometimes good is it didn't need to be an experience at all because we were proactive and we alleviated the need for them to make that phone call. And more and more, you find that as the aspiration, right? Emphasis is less on promoter scores and more on effort scores. Uh, less on sort of the 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 handle time and more on uh, predictive models that uh, anticipate that you know Peter High is probably about to call and we can get out ahead of this and solve his problem for him and make you happier uh, for it and uh, and all of that's predicated on just understanding all of the the mechanics of the relationship we have with you. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where we're committed to to leveraging and understanding the data that we're so privileged to have access to. Uh, and so that can be anything from just sentiment before anyone even calls us. That's just you're watching social media. There's so much you can learn now from people's behavior on social media as to whether they're disgruntled or not. Uh, more often disgruntled than happy, unfortunately. But that's really useful because you kind of want to get ahead of those. Uh, and we actually have a great offering where we where we focus on that. We we are actually the representatives or the proxy for the world's leading brands uh, on some of their social channels, and we engage with the happy customers, and we uh, and we we help and shuttle the unhappy ones to the right place to solve their problem as quickly as possible. And so you use that early stage, more sort of publicly available information. And you use information uh, once it sort of enters the funnel, if you will, once somebody actually calls. And we've got all sorts of work going on to, to really look at the telemetry of every single ounce of an interaction as far as Oh, hi, my name is Ian Barkin, and this is my account number. And please don't transfer me because I know I have to do this again, sort of thing. How do you how do you alleviate that pain? Um, how do you understand your relationship with me? Um, how do you understand the type of buyer I am, so that we can really design the solutions and the services that that support me the the best way humanly possible? And and as I mentioned, it just so happens that we are we are in that privileged position to have access to a lot of that information. It's the, the trick now is in using it. The trick now is in building those pictures of, of me and sort of the, 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 the category that, that looks like me uh, and, and anticipating how to design better processes, better services and better, um, better information and access to resources so that I can, if necessary, solve the problem myself or, you know, self-diagnose, et cetera, because so many people now do that. The the Google is the first step of every single customer journey seems to be um, 
you know, impossible to argue. That's where we all go first. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes to their product website anymore. Um, that's really, really interesting. It's, and it's ironic, isn't it, Ian, that, I mean, it strikes me that this is one of the areas, I'm, I'll paint with a broad brushstroke, that is in many ways underappreciated by so many businesses. Um, these interactions with customers and management of it and the garnering of insights and an accumulation of appropriate amount of data to go from, uh, his, to use the historical to become predictive, uh, to make sure that ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, customers are, are happier uh, and more satisfied with the product or services that we're providing. And, and yet there are so many organizations that are not getting this right. And I have to imagine, I'd like your own diagnosis as somebody who's immersed in this, but there's just so much dynamism. You talk about the, 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 uh, the pace of social media and the need to stay on top of sentiment um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, to say nothing of 20 or 30 years ago, uh, these were either you know, less relevant or irrelevant as the case may be, and now are super relevant as uh, people you don't even know can become your, become your marketers, uh, either in good ways or can be uh, your reputation destroyers as the case may be. Absolutely. And so I, I, I'd be curious with your own diagnosis as to why this is a field that on the one hand is one of the most important of all, and yet is also, I, wh- whether it's less appreciated or appreciated at a, at a level that's, um, that, that uh, is not tantamount to the value one can derive from it, or at least people are having dr- difficulty getting their arms around it. What, what's your own diagnosis of that? It's a paradox. I, uh, I marvel at this all the time. Um, I've had many guests on on my own podcast who are experts in customer experience, whose careers have been defined by their insights since they're far smarter than I. And it's interesting to hear their point of view on it as well. And, and it, it validates that enterprises look at cost centers and measure how to optimize them as reducing the cost. Uh, and sometimes what's lost in that assessment then is the, um, the, the secondary benefits of whatever function is going on in that center. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout my career, I, I, I was in outsourcing for quite a while and, and still am. And so we are a channel for enterprises to, to reduce some of the cost of, uh, of the customer care components of their business. And uh, hopefully, uh, in addition, tap into expertise, right? It is what we do. And so uh, hopefully people partner with call centers and, um, and back office outsourcing companies to tap into their excellence. But m- much of the time, the metric of success in choosing a partner and in managing that function is how, how short you can make the calls, how uh, cheap you can make the function. And I think... I am encouraged by the great deal of emphasis that's now being put on customer experience. I, I hope that that materializes, and I see in some cases that it has. And, and there are certain industries, there are certain companies, there are certain sort of stages of a company's growth too, where you see an absolute laser focus on customer, call it what you will, but customer delight, or customer loyalty, or customer fanaticism, whatever. And it's to make their customer extremely happy because they realize that at the end of the day, uh, making a call a little, little bit cheaper, a little bit faster sometimes may mean that that customer doesn't stick around with you as long. And that's far more, um, that's, that's far more damaging in the long term. And so I, I think that, I think we're also as an industry realizing 
just how valuable retention is, especially in mature industries. There's some great anecdotes and stories of particular industries where they're, they're very large players that dominate most of the market. They've, they've come to have to realize that the only way to, to compete and survive is through the, the, obviously the, the quality of the products or services they develop, but then the experiences they create for their, their customers across that entire customer journey. That's uh, very interesting insights. Uh, I appreciate you sharing those. I, I alluded to earlier, uh, Ian, that you are also a thought leader outside of your company. Uh, you have you are a fellow uh, LinkedIn Learning um, author, instructor, and have uh, multiple courses um, that, that I would recommend. Uh, an introduction to robotic process automation for those who are just in the early stages of investigating RPA. You also have one called RPA AI and Cognitive Tech for Leaders. Uh, I'm honored, actually, that uh, some of our our courses have been put together as part of a broader uh, uh, curriculum that LinkedIn Learning has curated relative to um, digital transformation and so on. Uh, but anyway, I wonder if you could maybe take a quick moment and offer some of the insights related to maybe we begin with RPA, just in terms of the evolution of that that. Uh, that set of practices and technologies that are associated with it and kind of have you diagnose a little bit about where, where we are in terms of its evolution. Sure. Uh, first, I must say that I, I knew I had succeeded when my course was included in a course curriculum with your course on digital <laughs> transformation. That was, that was very cool for me. So, uh, um, and I think I actually, I, I refer to your courses in mind because, because uh, I, a, and a broader foundational understanding of digital transformation is critical to, to, to any journey you take in the field. Uh, so, okay. So to answer the question, so um, again, backing up just to, to give context. So I had, I'd been a consultant, then I was in outsourcing and in outsourcing, you were leveraging technology, but mostly arbitrage to, to transform. You were tapping into talent and expertise and passion in countries where the dynamics of the economy meant that the labor was cheaper. And that was innovation at the time. That was the world becoming flat and you being able to tap into that talent. Over time, we identified software that could begin to emulate some of the tasks that we were outsourcing. And it actually, it fit perfectly because the processes that enterprises were willing to part with and send far away to teams they'd never met often were routine, rule-based, rote, simple, and ones they didn't necessarily deem to be so uh, strategically important, like financial planning and analysis, um, that they weren't willing to part with. So, uh, hence... Uh, BPO, the business process outsourcing industry, was really the, the the sort of the substrate in which the RPA capability could germinate quite well, and and did, and just as luck would have it, I was I was in the BPO industry when I stumbled on the RPA capability uh, before it was actually officially called RPA, and started, as you mentioned, started a, a consultancy to help enterprises interpret what RPA is and how to deploy it. And I think our greatest, um, our best decision and our greatest strength was that we didn't, uh, we, we didn't uh, leave our principles. We didn't abandon our principles. We stuck to what we believed made any sort of uh, service relationship successful, which was an emphasis on process. 
And so to understand what it is you were inheriting, how to transform it as best you could, given the tools you had at the moment, that served as the, the foundation and you know, the, the, the core to our frameworks and, and our messaging in the market. And, and so I think that's really what steers me through anything that I teach or anything that I write is an emphasis on fundamentals and foundational understandings of process, why an enterprise does what it does today, why it just because it's always done it doesn't mean that it's um, that it's that it's sacred or that it can't be challenged and transformed. And RPA just became that next catalyst to question the the current state, and a very powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the state of the industry and the the way that adoption has occurred has been quite interesting, and uh, I've got some feelings as to there some of it's gone quite well some of it i think could have gone quite a bit better but uh but it really was a shot in the arm to an entire global to every enterprise every single enterprise now knows what rpa stands for is now adopting it uh in some cases too much of it in too many different flavors too many different places before they're truly ready uh, but how exciting that it caught the imagination of of everybody in business uh, became a a unifier between IT and business that I think enterprises have always struggled with. Uh, it hasn't worked perfectly. Uh, the, those two those two groups are still oil and water a bit, but uh, but RPA I think is is not dead. It is is as relevant as ever and is a foundation to. Uh, organizational transformation and will be for decades to come. Mm. Talk, talk a little bit, I, forgive me for uh, um, asking you a very broad question here, but maybe you can provide a thumbnail sketch to at least simplify things. Um, you know, RPA, machine learning, artificial intelligence, there are elements of each of those that rhyme. And maybe even one could argue a maturity continuum that that goes from one to the next, or 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 leverages different aspects of of what's within each of those. You know, as somebody who's put some thought into and and and, and taught courses on this, in addition to leveraging the same for your businesses, talk a little bit about that relationship, if you would. Yep, I. Uh... It's funny. You reminded me of years ago. I would I would highlight all the charts that people put together that had sort of that that spectrum that would go from Excel macros all the way up to AI, and I would argue that it is it is no more a spectrum. There's there's no more of an evolutionary story here than a bike beca- or a, a fish becoming a bicycle, um, <laughs> because because they are so different that more of a fish doesn't make a bicycle. In the same way that more of a uh, you know a Microsoft Excel macro makes an RPA, or more of an RPA makes a cognitive, or more of a cognitive makes a, an AI. Um, I think. That's hence the birth of intelligent automation as as a moniker for the space because it is a combination of capabilities that if you can concatenate them well, say that five times fast, if you can combine them well and leverage them each for what they're good at and not put too much expectation on them to to be more than they are, then you've got a uh, a toolkit to enable your process transformation and hence create digital transformation. Mm-hmm. And so RPA uh, always was and probably always should be 
around very structured, scripted uh, uh, automation of, of defined processes. And one thing I think I said in my courses was uh, RPA is not dumb. It's just well-behaved. <laughs> and meaning that it doesn't anticipate, it doesn't fill in gaps, it doesn't do the things that perhaps machine learning or some algorithmic uh, capability would do, and nor do you want it to do that. You want it to emulate. In the same way, and I would relate this to our BPO days, in the same way, you wouldn't want me to offshore a process to a team somewhere else in the world and tell that team to just sort of make it up as they go along and then evolve the process as they see fit because they should use their internal algorithms to decide that there's a better way to do something. You just wouldn't allow me to do that. You would. You have contract management to prevent me from doing that. And uh, so RPA is the emulation and the augmentation of, of traditional outsourcing. Uh, and then you get to higher orders of algorithm. You get to machine learning and deep learning, all that fit under an AI banner. Um, and each of them has their own capabilities. Each of them has their own limitations. And I think um, some of them lend themselves to more exciting and, and dare I say it, sexy marketing. And I think that caused problems over the last several years. There was too much marketing and there was too much over-promising. And so enterprises rightfully investigated and invested in employing some of these capabilities and uh, and had perhaps too high an expectation of their, their easy out-of-the-box success. And so what we saw was, and, and what I, I'm seeing today is sort of a somewhat of a retrenchment back to sort of, again, core principles and a bit more, um, a, a bit more of a, an informed sort of investigation of what these capabilities can do. Mm-hmm. And I had a discussion yesterday with somebody who said that they've got AI algorithms running on their call center and it's, I can't remember the words he used, but basically it's a mess. It just, it gets it wrong. It's, it annoys the customer. I mean, you've, you've turned your customers into guinea pigs when you try to use this stuff too quickly. And referring back to the first part of our discussion, you want those customers happy, not annoyed that they're some sort of test subject. And so you've got to be really careful about uh, which capabilities within this intelligent automation uh, toolkit you employ and use and build into your standard processes. Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, full disclosure, you and I are, are old friends and former colleagues from multiple decades back. Mm-hmm. And um, you've had quite a journey since you and I were were at the same company. Uh, you've gone from consultant to uh, to entrepreneur. Um, in fact, you, you uh, uh, co-founded an organization, Symphony Ventures, um, the acquisition of which brought you to Sykes nearly two years ago. And um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about like sort of a, a thread or two that you would pull through uh, across your, uh, not, not that uh, you, you would have planned all that time ago for where you are now as a, as a, a chief, uh, an executive of a, of a billion dollar organization. But um, what are some of the threads that you would highlight that you, would, that you think were kind of uh, critical for you across that journey? No, Peter, this is exactly as I planned. I really <laughs> when I was 20 years old, I put this exact plan together and I'm executing it. You exactly. Well done. Wait for, the, wait for the next 20 years. I've, I've got some big things in store for me. Uh, no, you, you were absolutely right. I, I think I have been the result of a lot of right place, right time luck. 
And so, as as you said, uh, 20 plus years ago, you and I were helping enterprises interpret technology and employ it to to improve, to operationally uh, improve how they did any number of things, sell, design, um, operate. And I, I, I was intrigued by that. I loved strategy consulting right out of uh, college and so pursued it and, and then followed, actually followed a mentor of mine from childhood into outsourcing. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, a discussion that suggested there are some interesting things going on at an enterprise that was building its BPO practice. And so I moved from being a consultant who built PowerPoint slides to a, um, to a, a member of a team in the BPO industry that first built pitches, but then built teams. And I found it absolutely fascinating. It was a chance to travel the world, which was an aspiration of mine from childhood, and to, to recruit the leaders, find the buildings, uh, you know, observe the, the uninterruptible power systems as they went in, uh, and then build teams of, of 100, 500, 1,000 in various different locations around the world, and really be tapped into all of the, the beautiful complexity of finding great talent and, uh, and creating culture and supporting clients. Uh, that that I was uh, played some role in in winning to to be our clients, so that was exciting. And then that you know that was that was the outsourcing space, and that's as I said before is is where I just happened to be when all of the the work we were doing uh, appeared to be augmented by this software that said it could do the same thing quite easily and out of the box, which is never true. It takes uh, it takes effort, uh, but we took the time to explore it and understand what its capabilities were. And and that was when we, uh, I and three colleagues from from the BPO days, started Symphony Ventures because we we genuinely geeked out at RPA, thought it was very cool, but also saw that for it to to reach its full potential, you needed expertise, you needed processes, and you needed an adherence to those those foundational fundamentals that that made BPO successful. And yeah, and the rest is somewhat history. And so much as we had a tremendous run with Symphony Ventures, we grew it in four four short years to over two hundred experts around the world, helping incredible organizations wrap their head around what this digital transformation toolset was and what it could be. Uh, how to build the capabilities of their own teams internally, how to work side by side with us as we identify the right processes to just dip their toe in the water and prove that this works. And so, as you mentioned, about two years ago, we uh, we sold Symphony Ventures to Sykes Enterprises, uh, partly because I and and my my co-founders were fascinated by the evolution that the front office customer care, customer experience management space was beginning to take, which was to use that data exhaust, was to employ technology better, was to apply not only RPA, but those algorithms, because you need algorithms when you're talking to people. We're we're complex and confusing creatures, and uh, and we don't always follow the scripts that we we should to make it easy to support us, and so that's where intelligent automation and its broader capability set became imperative, and so that's that's what found me here. What's what found the Symphony Ventures team as part of Sykes and helping 
not only transform ourselves internally and really sort of drink our own champagne, if you will, uh, but also work with the the customers that Psych serves to to transform what they do and to gain better access to insight and analytics that help us all design better processes. That's great. Well, Ian, uh, what a 20 years it has been. Um, Congratulations on your success. Uh, You are somebody who has become a, not only an executive at an important organization, but a thought leader, uh, and perhaps, uh, uh, most of all, somebody who's admired by, by those people who know you best. I count myself uh, among those, um, you know, here's to, to, uh, your future success. I do look forward to seeing what the next 20 years holds for you. Uh, and thank you so much for taking time with me today. Hey, this is a thrill. Thank you so much, Peter. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, getting to nimble, how to transform your company into a digital leader. In an era of unprecedented technology, progress, and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others, have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same. To learn more, visit gettingtonimble.com. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Cynthia Stoddard, the Chief Information Officer of Adobe.